Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, it is our uh, desire and our prayer that um, just as we've been praying all morning long, that, that you would work in our hearts, that you would hold us fast, that you would do inside us the deep work that needs to be done because uh, we don't want to be superficially anything. We don't want to be superficial. We want to be deeply transformed by Jesus Christ. And if that's not on offer, then all of this is a waste of time. But you say it is on offer. And so we ask for it boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, uh, please sit down. And uh, if you would turn back to page 8... We, uh, that is a, a, um, a reading, a, a little excerpt from uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a new church in uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And uh, what we do is we, we take one of the books of the Bible, and each week we read a little bit more of it, and then we, uh, we expound it, we, 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 we investigate it closely during the sermon, because the idea is that um, we want to uh, listen to the scriptures rather than any individual, you know, perspective or or opinion and those sorts of things. We want to wrestle through this reading, and today we're going to be focused on verses 13, mainly verse 13 and 14, actually, in that reading. And uh, those verses, uh, verses 13 and 14, they press forward a a question that it seems to me is just below the surface for a lot of us. You can tell me later if you agree with this, but but here's the question it seems to me that is, is below the surface for a lot of us. What are we supposed to do with the evil that we see around us? Now, I use the word evil there on purpose. It's not in the text, but it's implied. Um, I think a few years ago, uh, the word evil was a very controversial word to use. I'm sure it still is. Of course it still is a controversial word to use. But again, you can tell me later if you think this is right. It seems to me that that there's been a little bit of a shift. It seems to me that... um, there's a variety of things going on around us in our world that means that we are finding ourselves coming back regularly and asking the question, um, what is it that explains some of the terrible, terrible things that we see? And, And in particular, it feels like there's a kind of evil that is very, very evident around us. And I don't think I even really need to give a lot of examples, do I? I don't even want to talk about what happened in Texas last week. A month ago was Las Vegas, or so. Harvey Weinstein was about a month ago. And all the wreckage that has come to the surface, not caused by, him, by that, that scandal coming, coming disclosed, but rather just the wreckage being disclosed that was already there. And those are just the obvious ones, right? Those are the ones that just kind of wake us up and, uh, and make us ask the question, what do we do with the evil around us? Why, what do we do about it? What does it mean? What is going on? 
And like I said, those are just the big ticket items. But all of us know that there is pernicious evil that just hasn't percolated up. It just hasn't come clear yet, but it's hidden. And it never gets named. And sometimes that's the very worst and most pernicious type of evil. And it seems to me that when you get just even a little glimpse of evil, even at a distance... Uh, it provokes at least three really obvious responses. It it, it scares us, because it's scary. It also makes us angry, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you angry? That's not the way it's supposed to be. But then thirdly, it makes us defensive. I think. I think it makes us frightened, Angry, defensive, probably a lot of other things. But the defensive there is, uh, is also there because there's a sense to which I think a lot of us find ourselves going, uh, well, the evil's out there, but at least I'm on the innocent team. And then we pause and we look over our shoulder and we say, I am on the innocent team. Now, all of this brings us to our passage today, because in this section of Colossians, we've been in it for the last few weeks, Paul's making an argument, and he's saying a number of really big things. He's saying, uh, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. And then, in a remarkable thing that we've been unpacking the last few weeks, he's been saying that Christ, out of his fullness, is filling the church, or bringing the church to fulfillment, or... Uh, enabling the church to begin to experience some of what fulfilled humanity is supposed to experience. Big claim, last week we said that that starts when Jesus gives us a new identity. A new identity. Here's what I want to show you this week. It, It continues as Christ gives us a new liberty. A liberty Jesus reaches down into our lives and seeks to rescue us from our own participation in evil. Our own participation. And, and, and let me elaborate just, just briefly. What, what it's saying is that if you want to know the nature of the evil that you see around you and how to deal with it, then according to Paul, you're going to have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ because it's in the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus defeats evil, takes it on, and defeats it. And I know that's an audacious, bold statement, but it is the bold statement that is underneath everything in Christianity. If it's true, everything in Christianity matters. If it's not, nothing matters. So we're going to try to figure it out a little bit. Okay? Verse 13. Uh, Paul writes this to the Colossians. He says this. um, You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, in some way allied to evil... God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little bit like we did last week. We're going to zoom out. We're going to fill in a backstory, and then we're going to come back to that verse. Okay? And and the backstory is, uh, is in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Old Testament. Here's one of the striking things about the Old Testament. Um, In one way... The Old Testament is a long, big story of Israel. It's the uh, national history of ancient Israel, right? 
But the weird thing about the Old Testament story is that Israel, although it's about Israel, Israel is regularly the bad guy. Have you ever noticed that? It's just a very strange thing about the story. That's not usually how it works. Usually, national histories work the other way around. If you're going to tell the story of your nation's past, usually you either tell the story in such a way that you win in a heroic sort of way, or you tell the story in such a way that maybe you lose, but you're the innocent victim, right? Because partly they're meant to tell you that you're okay. But that's not how the story of Israel works. It goes kind of like this. Israel uh, starts as uh, slaves in Egypt. And God, we talked about this last week, God reaches in, intervenes, rescues Israel from Egypt, brings them out, gives them a new identity. He says, you are no longer slaves. You are now uh, the people of God. And if we stopped there, it sounds, that's kind of what you expect to say. Oh, great. That's a good story. Lovely. But it goes haywire. And it goes haywire within days of them coming out of Israel. Do you realize that? Within, or Israel coming out of Egypt. Within days of Israel coming out of Egypt, what they do is it starts with just kind of generalized immorality and, and idolatry. What, what happens is they, they, they trade the God who rescued them from Egypt in for a newer, shinier model. They worship a, a golden calf. Remember that? Now, from our perspective, that might not sound like that big of a deal. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, they were kind of doing a religious weird stuff. Is that that bad? Well, from our perspective, no. But from the perspective of the Bible, that's kind of like the earthquake that begins a tsunami that rolls down the pages of the Hebrew scripture, generation after generation after generation, and it gains momentum so that at first it starts with simple idolatry, but then it grows into this kind of widespread corruption, and that widespread corruption then gives birth to widespread violence, and widespread violence eventually gets birth in the story to a king called Manasseh. Ever heard of the king called Manasseh? Um, Manasseh was an exquisite kind of evil. Hundreds of years later in the story. Let me read something about him. Uh, 2 Kings 21 verse 6 says this. Manasseh burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord was angry. Why do I mention Manasseh? I mention Manasseh because he's an exquisite example of an evil that had become generalized, one of the dominant themes in the Old Testament. And what that meant was that God's people had a record of terrible evil. And it was a record that made God angry. Now, this is going to get uncomfortable for a few minutes, so if it wasn't already uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> whenever we talk about God being angry, it, it's, it's very tense, and, and it's, it's offensive for some of us. But I need to point it out because it's a crucial part of the story. Um, God's anger in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, 
is actually a crucial part of his goodness. And I think maybe we have some resources right now to, to understand this. Um, if you look at the news right now, um, you know, the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke about a month ago. I'm not going to talk about it at all. But there's all these other scandals coming up. And every time a scandal breaks, don't we get angry? Shouldn't we get angry? Because that kind of abuse is wicked, it's evil, it's vile. It is not okay to do that. And when you're faced with evil, anger can be a virtue. There's a New York Times op-ed article that in the title said, you have to be brave enough to be angry. Now, that's true of us, but it's true of God much, much more. Because for God, God's anger and God's love are not opposites. We think they are, but they're not. God's anger in the Bible is what God's love looks like when it crashes into evil. But for Israel, it, it led to, there's a terrible dynamic because Israel's record of evil over hundreds of years meant that on the one hand, Israel was God's people, but on the other hand, Israel stood under God's just anger. And that terrible, terrible record in Israel's past left, uh, left it in a kind of slavery or, to use the word used in verse 13, in a kind of death. A kind of death, because once you have this kind of a record of evil, you are a perpetrator and you can't get out of it. You can't get out of it because it's there. You can't change the past. Harvey Weinstein's never rolling that back. To which I could imagine somebody coming back and saying, good, he shouldn't. And that might be true. But just for a minute, if I could take that example with all the charged emotion and just set it aside for a second and ask us to think about ourselves because we got, i got to point something else out. The moral outrage that we feel when we see evil can be a very good thing, very appropriate. But in humans like me, maybe like you, it can be a dangerous thing. Just imagine that someone hurts me in a real kind of evil. Not, not superficial. Somebody really hurts me. And I respond with anger. I respond with anger, and it's justifiable anger. Now, here's the terrible, terrible, wicked, wicked thing. The problem is that evil has a way of entering my heart and replicating itself within me. So then I start off as a victim, and I, I may be an angry victim, and if I'm not very careful, that evil can go into my heart, replicate itself within my heart, so that anger, justifiable anger, is transformed into hatred. And once that happens, hatred has a capacity to inhibit love. It just kills love in my heart. 
And before long, what happens is that hate begins to dominate love so that now my heart becomes trained to hate. And in that moment, I am ready to be a perpetrator even if I don't have the opportunity. Do you see how that happens? Evil is an infectious disease. And therefore, it's never quite enough for us just to stand against evil and say, it's awful, because the danger is, the reason, as true as that is, the reason it doesn't quite overcome evil is because precisely as I'm pointing my finger at somebody else, there's a terrible danger that I'm, my moral outrage at something else is blinding me to my own record of guilt, perhaps in a completely different area of my life. Am I as guilty as the person I'm offended by? I don't know, but the danger is that that very question might be a way of evading what I really do need to own. Israel was dead under the record of their guilt. The nasty little secret is so are we. And there's no simple way out. And we're left frightened because it's scary and angry because it's vile and defensive because whatever else we need to do, we've got to maintain an appearance of, of innocence because if that falls down, then we know that we're every bit as vulnerable to all the anger and outrage that's running around for everybody else. But the one thing that we're not is we're not free. Now, this brings us to Jesus. Because Jesus came to set us free. He came to set Israel free. He came to set us free. And he came to do what there was no way else that it could be done. Because Jesus is the one person who does not have the record of guilt. He's the fullness of God. He's as perfect as his Father in heaven is. But he is also the fullness of humanity. This is very important, friends. He's fully human, and importantly, in, in the story, he's fully Israelite. And because he's fully Israelite, he can voluntarily be Israel's representative. And because he's Israel's representative, he can voluntarily be Israel's substitute. What does that mean? What it means is that Jesus voluntarily took Israel's record of guilt upon himself. And not only did he take Israel's record of guilt, he took all of our records of guilt upon himself. And when he died on the cross, he suffered the penalty of all of that guilt. Don't ever imagine that God papers over evil. He doesn't. You say, why? why? Shouldn't he just be able to overlook it? Well, if he does that, a God that papers over guilt is not trustworthy. Any more than a judge who papers over guilt is not trustworthy. A God who papers over evil is not loving. A God who papers over evil is just another corrupt puppet of evil. And God won't do it. Instead, what he does is faced with evil, he decides to do something he doesn't He's not obligated to do, but he takes full responsibility for it, even though he's totally innocent of it. So that as human, 
Jesus assumed our guilt, and as God, he consented to the sentence against him, even though he was innocent. And as he died, it was a perfect act of love. And that perfect act of love destroyed the power of our guilt. Now look back at verse 13 and read it again. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Why? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And you could imagine it being vested into Christ's very body. And then as Christ is pinned upon the cross, there it died with him. Now, let me ask you a question. There's a cross right there. Is this real for you? Is your guilt gone? We talk about the cross a lot here, and, and, and God, please help us always to do that. And we've got a cross right there, which looks really pretty right now, doesn't it? doesn't it? But it's, it's gritty. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, and I know this is bold. If this offends you, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but it, to what extent is that just religious furniture? Because if it is, we're just playing around. Please, let's not play around. On the other hand, is it your life If you're not a Christian here, understand that this story is the thing that makes us Christians. It's the inner life of it all. It's before everything. And it comes after everything. And it's along with everything. Emmanuel, whatever it is that Jesus wants for us, he wants us to be a church liberated from evil by the cross of Christ. And it's a sweet and glorious thing. If you've tasted that, you know it. Even right now, your heart warms to say, yes, this is my story. This is my hope. This is what it is that gives me the power to walk. And if you don't know it, then you're sitting, you may be sitting here going, this is bizarre. I kind of wish it was true. All right, I need to land. But friends, this changes everything. Let me show you three ways it changes everything, Okay. Intuitive ways to respond to evil. Fear, anger, defensiveness. The cross transforms all three. Let me take it in reverse order. It transforms our defensiveness into honest confession. Just think about it. If Jesus' death purchased your pardon, total pardon, then you don't need to hide your guilt anymore. Uh, In fact... When the cross of Christ gets really real for you, then what, one of the things you'll see is that your, my defensiveness kills me. Hidden evil is powerful evil. And some of us here, I'm terribly frightened that some of us here have never known liberty through the cross precisely because we have never really confessed our sins truly. What happens is that we hide it away. We hide it away. And we come to church, and we may be very, very religious, 
when we look at the cross and we say, oh, yes. And, and at the right point in the song, we put our hand on our heart and we go, hmm. And we do all of the things that you know you're supposed to do in this particular culture to persuade people around you and yourself that you're in. But all the while, that hidden shame is whispering at you, saying, God hates you. And so you try not to listen, and it gets louder. Friends, God died to liberate you. Will he turn you away when you bring him your sin? There's freedom. Come. And then secondly, the cross transforms our anger. Now, this is a little bit different because I, we mustn't say that the cross destroys or replaces anger, but it transforms it until its aim is mercy. Um, here's what I mean. The cross never diminishes the offense of evil. In fact, if you believe in the cross, then you'll end up seeing evil as even more evil than you would have dreamed otherwise. Because it took the very death of God and his son to deal with it. And therefore, there's a way in which, as the cross becomes more clear, there's a way in which appropriate uh, hostility to evil actually sort of increases. However, one of the indicators, one of the signs of righteous anger, appropriate hostility to evil, is that it's always aimed ultimately at mercy. So it'll be aimed ultimately at, the mercy, at seeking the mercy of those who are victimized. So, for instance, th th think of it this way. Remember how hate inhibits love. And that leads to all sorts of terrible things. The cross does the opposite. The cross releases love. And one of the things that that means is that your heart will break for victims of violence. You, you, you'll actually feel more pain because your heart will be soft and you'll weep more often. You won't be as calloused. The news will matter. And when you see victims, one of the things that you'll see is that, is that the, whatever influence you have been given, and whatever power you have been given in your work, in your family, in your, in your community, whatever it might be, you will want to use your influence and your power to protect victims, to, to, to advocate to seek to release. It'll, it'll be aimed at mercy. But it'll also, and this is going to be, this is, this is really hard, but it will also be transformed, anger will be transformed through the cross so that we actually seek the mercy of perpetrators too. And this is tough, but um, God's love and God's mercy and God's just hostility to evil all combine at the cross of Christ. And so when Christ's cross becomes our life, then, then that pattern gets repeated in our own lives and we look at perpetrators and we don't, we don't let them off the hook and we don't paper over what they've done or anything silly like that, but we do ultimately say, oh Lord Jesus, will you do for them what you have done for me at the cross? And then we're able to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. Now hear me here, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying 
that you should go out and, 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 and have a, a silly, cheap kind of reconciliation with someone who has hurt you or who has not turned or repented or anything like that. So don't, don't, don't apply it that way. Be wise. But it transforms our anger to pursue mercy through the cross, both for victims and perpetrators. And then the last thing is that the cross takes fear and liberates it into courage. Evil's scary. The cross of Christ is stronger. And therefore, when the cross becomes your life, then what happens is you can engage the world more courageously. Because you know, you know that no matter what kind of evil you face, no matter how vile it is, it will not finally define you. It will not finally determine your destiny because that has been settled at the cross. If you're a Christian, you know that the cross determines your future and that that is a future that is filled with hope. And therefore, it means that we can step towards the brokenness in our world. We can step towards the brokenness in our neighborhoods. We can step towards the brokenness in our families. We can step towards the brokenness in your job and in your industry. And very importantly, within your own heart, you can step towards it and you can say with a kind of confidence, a defiant kind of confidence, Jesus Christ has defeated defeated all evil and he gives me courage to walk into the brokenness as the representative of Christ because he became my representative and I can walk into brokenness as the ambassador of Christ because he became the ambassador of God's mercy for me and that's how we become agents of liberation in a dark and broken world, and lights. It's the path of freedom. Let's pray. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and to those within the tomb, he is restoring life. Lord Jesus Christ, make your cross so vivid to us, so real to us, that it may redefine our lives thoroughly. And for those of us who, for whom this is just bizarre, meet us in all of the doubts that we have and liberate us and for those of us who have heard this a thousand times, make it new. And Lord Jesus, will you grant us to see the beauty of the triumph of the cross in our world? For your glory's sake. Amen.